Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome to episode 45. It's going to be another questions and answers, and uh, I'm loving the way that this is going because uh, it's gone from being just questions, which I'm absolutely happy to answer and absolutely happy to share whatever I know. Uh, it's gone to people just like telling me about what they're doing, and um I've got this one here from from Carlos Pereira. I think I mentioned last time we'd be uh, reading this one. He finishes up the end of it by saying, um, uh, "Thanks uh, again. Thanks for sharing your adventures and your learnings with us. It's very much appreciated. Feeling a connection with all sea people. Um, I think I think that's it. I think you've got it absolutely dialed in there, Carlos. Uh, let's read his email. But I think that's the thing. You know, write and tell me what you're doing. Uh, I think." Carlos's uh, email here tells us like what most people are doing on the other side of this uh, process. It's um, people are just getting on, living their lives, working on their boats, and, and interested and excited to hear what other sea people are doing. So this is uh, Carlos's uh, email. Obviously, Carlos is Spanish, living in Sweden, writing to me in English. Thank God that he took the time to learn how to <laughs> speak all these other different languages. We were pretty stuck if it was my Spanish or my Swedish, but I'll just have to, well, there's a few bits and uh, I might, I'll just change it as I'm going along so it, it, it tracks nicely. It says, hi, Chris, I just want to drop you an email to thank you for the entertainment and companionship your podcasts have been providing. I've been listening while working on our boat, doing all these monotonous jobs like cleaning, polishing, bottom painting, working with the mast, etc., Time flies while listening to your adventures and advice and priceless tangents. Good man, he's, he's down with the tangents. Uh, I'm writing to you from the west coast of Sweden, very close to Gothenburg. The season here is short and means, at least for me, that winterizing the boat on land, demasting and planning for a thousand projects all happen whilst dreaming during the winter. Uh, she just got into the water last week. Uh, we put in the mast, uh, put in the mast on the weekend. The good thing about Scandinavia is that there is a good culture for fixing the boat oneself, even putting in the mast. We have manual cranes to handle and uh, can do it with a few friends. It's sometimes tricky with a triple spreader keel step mast, I bet. Uh, a bit of my background in case you're curious, as you could guess by my name, I'm Spanish from the south, brought up in Cadiz. I moved to Sweden because of my work in the car industry and some 20 something years ago, uh, oh, and that was 20-something years ago, and I've been living in Germany for a bit, and even two years in China. Well, we share that. The sea and boats have always been part of my life, always in my head. The sea always has a way with me. I need it close by. Oh, that's, I guess that's it, hey? We, <laughs> however problematic these uh, holes in the water are that we throw our money into, I just haven't got any other options, just need it. Uh, I've been working as a delivery and charter skipper too, mainly as a way to get sailing when I didn't have a boat. Uh, I'm a yacht master offshore commercially endorsed. The west coast of Sweden, it's really beautiful and special for sailing. Tricky navigation with a minefield of rocks though. Here in Sweden, we've been lucky with Corona. We have had uh, quite some freedom to move, work and live almost normally. It's only restaurants and any other public meeting places that got restricted. Most people work from home most of the time. Um, the only problem has been borders, not being able to sail to Denmark, ski in Norway or visit family in Spain. Sweden has had a different approach to the rest of the world. We never got locked down and it seems to work well, especially here in the West, uh, in the West Coast. Hopefully soon it'll be over once vaccination is completed. Absolutely. And then he says, again, thanks for sharing your adventures and your learnings with us. It's very much appreciated. Feeling a connection with all sea people. Take good care. All the best. So see people <laughs> write to me and tell me what you're doing it's totally awesome thank you for that carlos i hope uh, that goes well with your 
triple spreader keel step mast that's always a bit of a wiggle getting in there make sure that uh it doesn't come down on anything that it's uh not meant to be on us it's a hell of a thing to get out i remember putting a mast into a volvo 60 and we got the whole thing done everything tensioned Oh, all perfect and then realized that one of the hydraulic lines that went up inside the mast which activated the um there's a way of kind of tensioning the check stays which help when you've got a stay sill up these are like lower check stays and there's a hydraulic ram inside the mast that tensions them realized that the uh the hydraulic uh um ca uh, hydraulic cable the hydraulic pipe had gone under the base of the mast and uh yes yeah, so had to completely take the mast all back out and fix all of that so Good, happy with that. No questions there, that's good. Uh, I've got another one here. I've actually printed these out so I know what's going on. Now this is from Jared Hensley. Um, he is in, he did tell me, uh, I've been living between Washington State and Utah my whole life, okay. Uh, now let's have a see, <laughs> his is pretty long so I think if we read all of it out, it's, uh, well it's pretty cool, let's have a see. Uh, I've been living between Washington State and Utah my entire life. And on my recent drive from Washington to Utah, I was looking for a new podcast to listen to. Hurrah! I had no idea what I was looking for, except that I was thinking about boating every time I had a spare second. So I typed boat into my Spotify search criteria under podcast topics, and your episode B is for boat came up. Oh, well, that's awesome. Okay. Oh, my marketing skills are so clever. Um, now to backtrack. I grew up in Washington, and my grandpa had a 30 or so foot Bayliner cabin cruiser and an obsession with boating. As his only grandkid that was hanging on every bit of information about boating, I also became his favorite deckhand whenever the boat was being taken out onto the Puget Sound. Fast forward a good chunk of time and into adulthood. I was a car mechanic for years. Yep, I know that feeling. And now I have been a carpenter for 20 plus years. In that time, I've owned a few small lake boats and been involved with um, an opportunity to float on the lakes. I've been involved with any opportunity to float on the lakes and rivers in Utah. Uh, he says, I just like to float. I guess that's it. It's like us, us sea peoples, we just like to float. Um, he says that he's uh, earned, I'll just kind of uh, slip through a few bits. He says he's earned the name, uh, the nickname Hollywood because he always thinks big and his plan is to have a boat, one in the Puget Sound, one in the Caribbean and one in the Mediterranean. And uh, that's how he's got to giggle out of people um, who obviously landlocked Utah thinking that he's uh, going to have all these boats around the place. So um, our man, Jared, better known as Hollywood. Uh, it says, come early 2020, I found myself becoming uh, pretty successful as a carpenter, awesome, and set designer for commercials, music videos, and doing stage design for Drybar Comedy in Provo, Utah. I know Drybar Comedy. I watch their um, their YouTube channel. That is hilarious stuff. And actually, now I think of it, uh, I've always been very impressed with the sets because it seems to be different behind them every time they're on. It's an opportunity to see comedians who are a little bit less uh, well-known. And obviously, just because they're a little bit less well-known doesn't mean they're less funny. They just haven't hit those uh, those big numbers in their audiences. But yeah, Drybar, Drybar um, YouTube channel is awesome, really funny. Uh, as you can imagine, everything came to an extreme stop last March, absolutely. So I went back to Washington to help my sister in rebuilding her newly bought 48-acre, 100-plus-year-old farm property. Okay, I'm guessing you're rebuilding the house. If you've got a 48-acre house, you really are Hollywood. Uh, right, now, here we go. Now I'm back in Washington with a girlfriend uh, who's never spent any time by the ocean, so I'm excitedly bringing her to all the local marinas and <laughs> dorking out on explaining the different types of boats. Yeah, you've always got to, like, wander around boatyards, and uh, I, was, I was told it's called patting boats' bottoms. Um, you just wander around like, oh, yes, and this is a full keel with a, a keel-hung rudder, and this is a two-blade prop. You can line this on the back of the... People are like, 
wowed by your uh, sailing knowledge until you realize <laughs> they're, they're just like trying to stifle yawns and get out of there. That's a particular kind of person you have to find if you like patting boats bums. Um, he said, I'll scan, scan for a little bit forward. He says that one month later, I had my offer accepted on a 1941 54 foot wooden trawler. And there's a picture of it here and it is glorious. It's absolutely beautiful. I am glad though that you're a carpenter because there's a lot of wood going on there. And uh, it was exactly what I wanted in every aspect with the only exception that it was 20 feet longer than I planned. Yeah, that does kind of happen in boating. I think you could maybe draw some kind of curve where you start out with what your pocket can afford and then it goes up and up like to numbers beyond what your pocket can afford. That's always my experience. And then there's probably some moment which I've definitely not reached where um, where you realize what's sensible and usable um, and, and you can afford it. I guess that's... Um, that's cool. Being a shellback, an old geezer, they've worked it all out, right? Okay, and then scanning forward again, he says, I've always wanted to learn to sail, but I've never actually really cared to be a sailor by wind. You know, I, you know whatever gets you out on the water, sailing and, uh, and, and motorboating, whatever, it's all about freedom, however you, however you find that. I think sailors have got a bit of a problem with stink pots and motorboats if they're badly piloted, and people on motorboats have got a problem with uh, sailors if they are... Uh, well, if the sailboats are badly piloted or if the people on board them are, are idiots, I guess that's the issue. Oh, <laughs> and that leads us into the next sentence. And he says, mostly because I don't consider myself a purist. And there are a ton of sailors on the Puget Sound that seem to come across as an elitist. Yes, that is a problem with sailing. Hey, it's one of those things. It does not help this pursuit. It does not help the sport. It doesn't help anything. This kind of elitist thing like there are much bigger areas of human interest where people are not elitist and, uh, and it all runs along quite uh, easily, even though they require investment in you know thousands of dollars worth of, you know, I know car racing or, or truck racing or motorbike racing or things that involve machines you have to purchase and then you go and do that. Um, I, I don't feel like they're as beset quite so much as the... Um, the white sunglass uh, a gang that we've uh, got here. I do have, someone pointed this out to me the other day, I always say, oh, people in white sunglasses are elitists in sailing. And they said, well, you've got white sunglasses. And I pointed out, I won them. <laughs> I won them in, I don't know, like some regatta or something where we got like fourth, like leather medal. And um, you got some white gold sunglasses. So I wear them for um, cutting wood these days. That's mostly what they're for. <laughs> I use them as um, for when I've got the chainsaw and stuff out. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to get towards the end of this. Otherwise there won't be any room for anybody else. But, um, he says, uh, he's, he's looking to get onto a sailing vessel if he can and get his feet wet. Um, his questions would be, uh, where would you suggest I start as far as learning to be a proper sailor? I'm obviously going to start taking classes and learning all the physics that I feel I have a good understanding of, but what might my first sailing vessel be? What's the best place to reference knowledge? Huh? I guess that's a ton I talked about. It is indeed. He's attached this picture of his boat. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that, Jared Hansley, otherwise known as Hollywood. Um, How do you get into sailing? That's, you know, simple is that it's the best way to start. If you end up starting out on a boat, which is like way complex, you're going to miss the whole point. If you've got sailing like sorted out, basically, you roughly know what's going on with it. And then suddenly you get a boat that's like got a cabin and you can go sailing and and sleep on the boat. And then you get a boat that's got, you know, a cabin and some nav gear and, you know, a windlass or something like that. Suddenly it's, it's like evolving and it's building and it's kind of becoming something else. Um, because we're adults and we can jump in with an open checkbook and buy something that's 40 foot, which is super impressive for our friends. It, it's tendency to do that. 
and then you start to really regret and resent even all of the effort it takes to keep it clean, all the money it takes to keep it up to date with, you know, uh, safety equipment and what have you, um, the insurance, the parking, the marina, the dinks and dents that have to be repaired. Like you start resenting all that stuff and then you start hating sailing. Sailing at its most basic is just getting out on a boat, getting out on the water and the kind of things which allow you to do that are definitely going to be looked down on by those white sunglass sailors. It's just, it's, it's not going to like appeal. There's nothing to be impressed by, but like who gives a stuff really what they think? If you're out there and you're having fun with your partner and it's relaxed and maybe the kids are along or whatever it is, as long as you've got to a point where you're happy doing that, everyone's got life jackets on there. You know, you're keeping it safe. I would say the best sailing I've ever done, like learning and kind of coming into sailing was that little, um, uh, what was it? Drascom, Drascom longboat. I, I, I think they're like 18 or 19 foot long it's a fiberglass uh, boat that's got kind of like clinker effect on the outside it's got a wooden rub rail it's got little wooden mast it's got little tan bark sails you can drop an outboard motor into it and the fun they had on that there is there is there are different kinds of fun like you know racing at 20 knots across oceans is a particular kind of fun it's very high stress it's very high kind of octane fun but in terms of being on the water and having honest to God, good fun. I would say nothing ever really exceeded that. Um, just being in that little open boat. Now it's not good for the shoulder seasons because it gets cold and all the rest of it, but taking it, it's most simple. I would look at something like that because you will learn so much about the way a boat handles. And, um, even now when I, I've got like, uh, let me see, like the Volvo, uh, 60, the Whitbread 60, whatever challenger. It's, um, when I'm, when I stop in the middle of the ocean and we bring all the sails down and, and, it, and it turns and sort of settles itself into where it wants to sit relative to the wind, where it's hydrodynamics and aerodynamics line it up with the breeze and the waves, whenever that happens, I can still remember the first time uh, out on the water in Hong Kong, which is where I was working as a volunteer in this little um, Drascom longboat and learning the same thing with that boat, learning like, oh, actually, you know, every time you you know, take all the sails down and lash the tiller. The boat always ends up at the same orientation to the wind. Mm, how interesting. And then learning like how I can modify that angle. And then, oh, I can heaving too is kind of a variation. It's still the same principles and techniques. If you want to learn to sail, learn to sail. If you want to have a showpiece to to show off to your mate. So that's, that's a different kind of thing. So I would say something that is trailerable, that you can pop in the water, you can get back out at the end of the weekend, like wet, nasty, whatever, chuck all the stuff in there, put the tarp on it, whatever it is, take it down the road, put it back in the garage or in the backyard and tidy it up at your leisure. Um, sometimes with boats, it can end up with, and boys are particularly like susceptible, it ends up, everything's so bloody fastidious that it becomes a misery. I remember my dad uh, going out, um, well, take, taking the family out when I was very young, younger enough that I don't remember the story, I've been told it so many times, and um, it would be a little... Uh, like 20 foot cabin cruiser like maybe there's a little toilet maybe there's a little, little place kids can lie down but not much more maybe something like a 40 or 50 foot 50 or 50 horsepower my god 50 horsepower engine it's the heat i'll tell you there was sun streaming in the window here i've nearly got like um sunburn sitting here doing this um but uh yeah 40 or 50 horsepower engine on the back of it and uh you know, go out, cut the rods, go fishing. It sounds quite good, right? So mum gets the kids together. There's three of us, uh, ranging between, I guess, say like 14 and four. And um, off we troop down to go on the boat. Now, all of that is pretty cool. The problem was the engine wouldn't start. But my dad, being a mechanic, then ended up getting into like getting the engine going. He lost the 
perspective and focus on what we meant to be doing, which was having family time together. It wasn't about get the engine started at, at all uh, on at all costs. He was um, maybe kind of bringing some like militaristic uh, idea to it that these steps had been laid out and therefore we will take these steps. And even though one of these steps is now taking four hours and the entire day is only meant to be eight hours, we're still going to do that step. So the good thing with the little trailerable boats is that you can pump them in the water, uh, do whatever you're going to do, bring them back, put them back on the trailer, whip them back off. You can be in the uh, sea one week. You can be on a reservoir the next week. You can be in lakes the week after that. You can be a river. You can you can mix it up and turn it around and make it nice and easy. And um, I think when something's smaller and you and you have control of it, that creates a much more positive environment. I think you said, Jared, that your, your girlfriend's new to sailing. Yeah. So as you learn it together, your normal manly instincts to kind of like, I've got this sorted, lovey, that can all go out the window and you just learn it together. And if it bumps up against things, it's got almost no inertia. If it damages, well, it's small damage. Like there's no way of really messing it up and you can find out whether you like sailing or not. You like floating. I like floating too. Uh, sailing's good. Um, sailing becomes a problem if you don't know how to operate the boat and then you're like crashing into things in the marina and, you know, it's super expensive. And then everybody has to like, make sure you wipe your kids wipe wipe your kids wipe your feet children before you get on the boat and then people are freaking out because of milk you know spilt on the sofa and it's like we're completely missing the point here we're meant to be having fun let's not lose sight of that so i would say um if you've got the money to do it and uh and have a, a an option on a small trailerable very simple sailboat probably with a little outboard engine so if it all gets just you know it's getting too weird and you need to get in you can just drop all the damn sails and, and bring it back in you know i am i'm not into being a purist when it's like get on the water and be safe with family that's the most important thing you can do the uh the training in the u.s the u.s coast guards uh skipper's license is something to work towards that the safety thing is very important obviously kids with life jackets on how you get in and out of the water flares all that kind of stuff you can really enjoy getting to grips with that in a very simple scenario on a small boat and then everything you've learned will translate upwards and the people who are around you um, who come and do this activity with you whether it's girlfriends, wives, kids, whatever it is they will want to come because it's been fun so far because um, it's super awesome having a 40 foot boat but it totally sucks if no one wants to come out uh, on it with you and it's very expensive and stressful and you end up it's a bit like having fancy cars like i don't know you know what cars anybody drives here but i've i've driven some fancier cars i've owned there was one time way back i owned like a little porsche boxster like 10 years old and it was all cool but you end up like really worrying you know it, where have i parked it is everyone going to dink it or dent it is someone going to leave the the um the logo off the front of it the the servicing is expensive it's unless you really get a mega kick out of owning a Porsche, there's there's just no point in doing it. At the moment, I have a 1950 uh, Studebaker, which I bought as a little uh, money-making project. It's absolutely glorious. It's nothing mega expensive, um, but it's fun. It's 50s. It's got a kind of like uh, Airstream line to it, you know, lovely curves and what have you. So many people are interested to, to come and talk, but um, it does remind me that most of the people who are impressed by my choice of that car are old men and schoolboys. So if you and it's the same with 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 fancy boats. If you really want to impress um, old men and schoolboys, then just go down that path with the yacht because you might get a, a load of super shallow kind of like reactions from the opposite sex if that's something that's important to you. But that's it's going to be it's going to be pretty skin deep. Like it, you know, it might do that evening, but that's the end of that. So you've got to work out what you're trying to get out of it. Um, 
And if it's being on the water and being with family and friends, I would start small, I would start simple, I would start cheap, and I would um, make sure that every outing is about learning uh, for you both together and about having fun. And I would say, if you wanna be a bit more specific, make a little destination, make a little place you're gonna to go to, because just going out and going round and round in a boat is totally meaningless. Once you realize that we're gonna go around this headland to the beach that's on the other side, we're gonna go ashore, we're gonna you know, go in and have something to eat and whatever it is that you can do, we're gonna get back in the boat and come back round, you're gonna learn way more about that and there'll be like a, a point to it all. So, and then, well, online is the other thing, hey, uh, you know, where do you learn stuff? There's so many options online now. I think if you're in the US, US Coast Guard's um, skipper's license, the six pack is a really good way to go because it's you know it's a, a, an official uh, qualification you get at the end of it. But uh, also you can pick up the, the RYA, the Yacht Master, uh, well, sorry, the Royal Yachting Association's Day Skipper and Yacht Master uh, qualifications give you so much information. They have wonderful syllabus books now, which are you know a lot of pictures, a lot of things that you can learn very easily. Um, so even if you don't want to take that qualification to sail, uh, you know where that might be beneficial, there's still a great syllabus. So I'd look at the RWA syllabus for Day Skipper, and I'd look at the U.S. Uh, Coast Guard's um, Skipper's License, the six pack in the U.S. Make it fun, make it simple, make it cheap. And, in, and enjoy it. And um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear what happens next. So let's go on from there. Uh, we've got a few more to get through here. We've got two out the way. This is good. I've, I'm like vaguely organized here. All right, so I've got another one here. Now, I've got an interesting one. <laughs> the question is relatively simple. Uh, me trying to say this name might be problematic. So uh, the first letter <laughs> is an O with a diagonal line through it. So uh, we're gonna go with this because there's another one in the second one. I think it's something like Oivind Mjoinnes. Is that is that vaguely okay? I don't think you're from Nova Scotia. I think this is maybe Scandinavian, but Oivid, if I'm getting it right, says hi. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on using synthetic materials for standing rigging on cruising boats? You certainly have given thorough explanations on the benefits through the videos, the, the Mariner videos on YouTube there. He says, before I go ahead and swap the old stainless with Dyneema on my boat, um, you know, is there anything I should consider? So thanks for that question. Yeah, there is, uh, there's a few bits and bobs chit-chatting about this on the Mariner videos. Uh, more of those coming soon once we're able to leave Nova Scotia and uh, set off on my, on my adventures again. Dyneema can be a great option for, um, for sorting out uh, the standing rigging on the boat, but you need to understand exactly what you're getting into. Uh, there is a fantastic YouTube uh, resource, which you might want to have a look at, called The Rigging Doctor. Is that right? Rigging Doctor? Yeah, Rigging Doctor on YouTube. And he's done a lot of work replacing the, the standing rigging on his, I think it's a catamaran that he's got on that. There are considerations about diameters, how you're going to attach it to the existing hardware that's already on your boat, how it's going to go onto the tanks on the um, on the chain plates, on the mast, but there's, there's lots of ways of getting past that. You need to know about uh, tensioning it and then creep and what's gonna happen down the line. How often does this need to be retensioned? Um, and then I think it's uh, you know pretty pretty kind of standard from there. I know I've come across an issue when we had that Formula 40 trimaran uh, spirit and we're bringing her up from Car North Carolina to, uh, where do we go, Boston. The issue there was that the boat had been re-rigged by the uh, riggers at the boatyard and they had specced a Dyneema which was not pre-stretched 
And my God, it was a rotating carbon fiber wing mast, like 60 odd, 70 foot of it. And uh, it took three or four days to get enough tension. The other alternative was completely replace all the rigging, which was not really on our schedule of things to do. And we knew that we could stretch it in as far as we needed to for what we were doing. But uh, it, it, we probably took a meter of stretch out of the, the shrouds on that boat before we actually able to go to sea. It just was impossible because it was something like a SK-78, um, like a high performance um, uh, rope, but it was not pre-stretched. So you could say, yeah, this is an extremely strong piece of synthetic uh, rope. Fantastic. It's going to hold the, the loads that we've got. Brilliant. But then it would not pre-stretch. So you cannot use it in standing rigging. And we kind of made it work. But uh, be, yeah, just learning what the materials are, uh, absolutely key. Learning how to implement it on your boat, absolutely key. And then learning how to, to keep up with it thereafter, uh, I think would be the trifecta of things that you need to look at. Uh, cost is not shocking. Um, and obviously it's lighter, which then gives you a little bit more performance perhaps to win with if you're worried about that. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a, a way you can consider going. Stainless steel, you know, it's been out there a long time and it does the job exactly as you're expecting it to do. And as long as it hasn't got like copper swages on it or anything rubbish like that, it's it's going to last. But if you're at a point where you're making the changeover, it's definitely worth considering. But as with anything else, you've got to do the, do the research. So I would say look at the rigging doctor on YouTube and find out what he's been doing and he's made mistakes and come back from it so you can learn a lot from there. And then, then write to us and tell us tell us how it goes. I'd be very interested. You can also <laughs> you can also write to me and tell me exactly how to pronounce Oyvind Mjornes. Good, we'll get on to that. All right, another one uh, here from um, Peter Gibbons Neff, which is about uh, the PGN Ocean Racing, which is a veterans racing association in the US. We're just working on this at the moment. We've set up this new charity called the um, Spartan Sailing Foundation in the, in the US. The proposal's coming together and hopefully that's gonna be going in front of benefactors in the next uh, month. And the idea is to then take at least two boats of veterans uh, around the world in the Ocean Globe Race, which I'm spectacularly excited about. I'm also trying to pursue to see if we can do that in Canada because I can see a little bit of friendly rivalry going on there. And then when we say veterans, it's not just military veterans, it's gonna be uh, first responder veterans as well, the police force, fire brigade, EMTs, all deserve support as they move away from those services and into new careers and uh, maybe specifically um, requiring, you know, a, a little bit more support than just, you know, oh, I used to be a carpenter and now I'm a mechanic. Uh, it's, it's, it's very different going from military life into everyday life. Um, there is a transition uh, uh, route. There's a way of doing it. There's a positive way of getting through with support, but um, it, I would like to make sailing part of that because I think it has so much to offer. And, and I know Peter Peter Gibbons Neff here is exactly the same. He has a question for me. His is not uh, uh, about the veteran sailing specifically. It's actually something which I guess we all have to worry about, which is about boat insurance. Uh, he says, um, do you have any recommendations for boat insurance companies? I am having a difficult time finding a company who will insure a US documented sailboat in France for solo racing. I'm going on over a dozen quotes and just haven't found a company to insure me yet. The company listed on the Class Mini website recommends US companies and the US companies recommend the French companies. Appreciate any and all recommendations. Well, Peter, that's a very good point. So firstly, you should be insured. There's no two ways about it. Uh, you can get away with it, 
but you, you should have some kind of insurance if you're in and around marinas or you're in any situation where you can cause damage to other people. If you have come, people coming to work on the boat, if you have other people that are sailing with you, you should have insurance on the boat because there are more people affected by this than just you. If you're gonna go off and like risk yourself doing solar racing, which I do, and then you've gotta make sure that your situation is correct and ready for those people gonna be left behind if you don't come back. Um, so I'm not gonna say, every single person must be insured uh, that your area that you're in your legislation uh, in your area will de de will will demarcate what it is that you're meant to be doing or not your boatyard a marina will demarcate what's going on but clearly a lot of people don't and if you're going off to sail around the world um, a lot of people make the decision that that's they that they don't want to do that that they that they don't want to be insured that it's too expensive to do it and it will limit their opportunity to do it and then they sail with that knowledge so i'm aware of the the, the broad spectrum what's going on here now but if you have an asset that you want to have in protected if that asset's going to be in and out marinas um that there's no two ways about it you got to do it so what then happens what happens next if you're u.s and you're getting insurance in the u.s no problem if you're canadian and you're getting insurance in canada no problem if you're european and you're getting insurance in europe it's also no problem like it's completely groovy the problem is when you've got US or Canadian owned vessels and you're trying to get insurance in Europe. European vessels getting insured in the US, not too bad, and same for Canada. The problem is when you go the other way. And that is unfortunately because whether it's truly the case or whether it's just the way it's seen, um, they the European insurance companies feel that they will end up getting in to loads of unnecessary litigation if they insure entities which are owned in the US and Canada. That's what they feel. I have had this myself. I had this with um, the Spartan boats when I was with Challenger the first couple of years. We had an uh, insurance situation, which was that the boat was insured in Canada. It was insured in England and most of Europe. It was insured in the Caribbean with three different insurance companies. And there were bits, there was like, there was one bit which was a geographic blip of like 500 miles where technically it wasn't insured. And there was another bit where it was was it timing or something? It was like a timing one where we couldn't be at sea for like two weeks because the insurance didn't didn't overlap in quite the way that we wanted to. We got a deal on the um, Caribbean sailing insurance, but it was for a season which was identified as between here and here, it's insured. So I understand the issues with this and I've had this round and round and round and round and it was actually uh, Sitzka de Kroc from Sail Race Crew and uh, she was able in the end to get a Dutch company to ensure the boat like worldwide. Now, uh, how much does that cost? I'm, I have, <laughs> there are no secrets here. And to ensure a 60 foot boat for about 10 different races all around the Atlantic, Caribbean, and up and down the East Coast, it was, let me get this right, 27,000 US dollars a year. So yeah, that's how much it costs. Now our boats are a business. We take that as being a fixed cost through the year, but it ain't cheap. And then it's not going to be very much cheaper if you're just cruising. If you're doing those routes and doing some racing, it is spectacularly expensive. I'm not even sure exactly where that will be at when we get to the end of COVID because obviously everything's like, uh, everything's drawn to a stop. The, the, the policies that we had in place changed the policies that's protected the boats on the shore when they're out of the water and out of the um, out of operation. Quite what happens thereafter, we, we shall see. The one thing I can say is that... Um, if you know that a U.S. entity will insure a U.S. boat and that a European 
uh, insurance company will insure a European boat, the only options you've got is that you're going to have to set up a company in Europe and that company owns the boat. As, as far as I know, that's the only way of doing it. There are um, uh, company uh, countries rather like Holland. It's relatively easy to get uh, insurance. Uh, sorry, not insurance. Very relatively easy to register your boat in Holland. And uh, I think Malta is another one like that. They have it set up. It's it's a kind of throw off from the fact that you can register super yachts and what have you in these uh, different um, different countries. So have a see about doing something like that. But uh, I was talking to Ryan Barkey, who we did the interview with uh, maybe like 15 or 15 odd podcasts back now. It's a pretty good interview, quite a long one. Ryan's looking to go and do the class 40 round the world race the uh in i think it's on for next year now they, they postponed it from this year but exactly the same issue he was looking at um chartering a boat for his uh, round the world race but that boat that he was looking at was american owned and then he's going to try and insure it in europe for this round the world race and that got very complex very very quickly so there is no simple answer i would say um your choices are get a European company that you form and then try and register in one of these uh, uh, territories that will that will help out with that. I would say Holland, uh, Malta is another one. Uh, or the other option is the other option is to get other competitors from there in the same situation you are, uh, other people that own boats, and then to approach insurance agents with like five or six of you and say we want to insure all these boats and do this thing. And then they may listen to you. And that is really the only way that I've got going forwards in all this is because we have a number of different boats is we can go and say, hey, we're bringing you all this business. Um, are you willing to, to cut a deal for this? So they are looking at the risk and they are looking at they will look at individuals and, you know, what's your background and where you're from and what you're doing. And are you likely to lose the boat? What's your experience? Are you likely to sue us? Have you done that in the past? They're looking at all of that. But if you're just knocking on the door uh, and kind of asking for a basic insurance policy, you know, they are very, very um, uh well, they are very, very reticent to to insure people from from North America because it's just that that whole crazy '90s and early 2000s thing of like, you know, we're suing everybody for everything. It there was always going to be a backlash, and the backlash is um, people around the world don't want to insure you. I, I've I've skipped superyachts, and literally on two different occasions, I've had to uh, get special dispensation from the insurance company just to insure. North Americans coming to work on European boats because they're just like, nope, not doing it. So good luck with that, Peter, with your insurance. Um, moving swiftly along here. Um, let me have a see. Okay, so this is, now I've got this a lovely long email. Is there a name at the bottom of it? It's always Warren. Hey, Warren. Um, he he was one of the people that uh, was chatting to me after I did the A is, a is for anchoring. And he was very happy to discover that um, uh, I was kind of backing up what he was saying that, um, you know, if you're putting your scope out on your anchor chain or your warp or whatever it is, that's calculated from the surface of the water. And, you know, it doesn't matter what happens from the surface of the water to the bow of the boat. You can have a very high bow, you can have a very low bow. That's not to be added in. You're going to end up with an enormous uh, turning circle. Certainly, when you're in a situation where you're trying to moor with loads of other people, if you've got one boat that's got twice as much scope as everybody else, it makes a massive hassle in the anchoring field when you're, when you're doing that. I think Warren probably agree with me when it's um, when it's very very windy and you're in a more kind of like hey well we need to hold on tight here kind of mode, let that road out, let it out. It ain't doing no good in the bow of your boat. Get it, get it out, get it out. So I will um, 
uh, always be continuing to do that. I will put my minimum down for when I'm in a, a clustered situation, but then as soon as it gets uh, windy, I'll be putting more out. But um, he says, uh, he's, I'll read a little bit here. He says, uh, I do understand why professional mariners want to know the water depth under the keel, but I think that for amateurs, a depth sounder set to true water depth is by far the easiest thing to work with. In the old days, with the crazy little seafarer flasher type depth sound depth sounder trying to visualize one foot on the screen would have been tricky but you can see six foot for a six foot depth keel fairly easily so i've always used the true water depth it's also so much easier if you have an experienced crew to tell them tell i guess inexperienced crew to look at the depth on the chart and then look at the depth on the echo sounder and make sure that one is more than the other uh, and you're fine yeah that's i guess a nice easy way of doing it where it gets super confusing is when they don't calibrate it and it's say three feet from the unit to the keel and then nobody knows what's going on. Okay, so I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, with depth sounders, we've always got like three options. Three options? Well, three or four options. Let's have a think about this. From the packet, the depth sounder has no offset on it. It has, uh, it, it just, it's recording the depth of water uh, from where it is on the hull down to the seabed. Okay, so super easy that's your transducer depth from the transducer the bit that does the emitting of the sound down to the seabed nice and simple it's not very useful though because then it's it's neither one nor the other it's not like the the depth of the water and it's not how much water is under the keel so i know people that use that and i did do a little bit of research on this before i dove in here just to make sure i was up to date with what was new i looked at um some uh polling which had been done by practical boat owner magazine in the uk i think it was and they had uh, ended up come come to a basically was split into thirds you had a third of the people did the depth below the keel and a third of people did the water depth from from the surface of the water to the bottom um the other third of people was made up from i don't know or set to transducer so that's you know it's fair enough um i always use depth under the keel and let me tell you why i use depth under the keel because as a professional seafarer you have to. There's no other way around it. There's no there's no other options. That you have to do depth under the keel because that is the stipulation from the International Maritime Organization and from the MCA in the UK, the Marine Coast Guard Authority, which endorses my license. Why is that? Because those authorities are based on um, commercial seafarers and they have to have one rule for all, okay? The commercial seafarers must have the depth below the keel because the draft of their ships changes so often okay on such a big vessel changes in the salinity of the water changes in the temperature of the water changes in uh how much ballast you've got in how much cargo you've got in the trim forward the trim aft there's so many variations that in the end the mate's job overseen by the skipper Come, you know, a lad say when it's time to leave the dock, he has to be able to tell the skipper how much water is there under this ship. And then you can make judgments about the contours that you go over thereafter. And obviously we'll see ships with the um, the lights on or the day signals showing that they are constrained by draft, that they can't um, go out of this channel because that's, you know, the deepest part of the water and that's where they got to be. So um, commercial seafarers have to do that. It's one of the reasons why on uh, uh, charter boats in charter fleets, you will have the boat set with the depth sounder below the keel because they are a commercial operation. And at the end of the day, 
whenever you do anything on a boat as a commercial seafarer, but it also flies for anybody that's a leisure sailor, whatever you do, whatever choice you make, you have to imagine that it goes wrong and you end up in court and you're in the box and you're getting cross-examined. Uh, cross, um, the person who is cross-examining you is an admiralty lawyer. They're a maritime lawyer. And the person who is going to be a professional witness, who is then going to go against whatever you say, will be a master mariner. They will be a commercial seafarer. So, you know, we're all kind of bimbling around in our flip-flops and sunglasses and you know, our gerbers and, you know, polo neck shirts and whatever it is that you're wearing that's your kind of get up for going sailing. That is not going to look like the attire of the people that then start questioning you about your choices. When you go into a court like that, the law is written down. This is the commercial law. And the people that will be cross-examining you will be from that world and they will not understand why you have chosen to do things the way that you've done. Now, if there are good reasons, understandable reasons, it's international best practice within your sphere. Um, it is something that is clearly understood within your crew. It's been briefed and all the rest of it. Then they will be much more likely to uh, under understand the situation. Now, trying to think about what situations you can get into where the depth is going to be such of an issue. Obviously, on a big ship, you could ground a ship and then potentially lose the ship because of such an error. A little bit trickier to do on a yacht, but you can imagine maybe like there's an insurance claim or something like that. But whatever you do, not just depth sounders, always imagine if I have to explain this later on to somebody who's got shiny shoes and creases down the front of his pants and he's got epaulets on his shoulders and a cap that he took off before he sat down, can I do that? And if you can't, you need to really doubly think about what's going to happen next. Because if it goes wrong, uh, that's where you're going to end up. So depth sounders. Commercial is always going to be from the bottom of the keel. You can't change that. That's why that happens. If you get used to that system, it's got some benefits. It's got some benefits because the, um, the depth starts clicking down, clicking down, clicking down. And then if you've got it worked out right, when it hits zero, you hit the bottom. There is a little bit of fudge room in that. Now, how do depth sounders go wrong is an important thing to kind of discuss here. Okay, you know, how accurate does this thing need to be? Um, if you've got a lot of mud moving along the bottom of the river, like the river that we we're coming out of in North Carolina there, it has some crazy uh, numbers coming up on the depth sounder. It was, it's picking up, there's enough density in the sediment which is being moved around on the bottom of the river that it's bouncing back off that, that sediment stream. You can get this also at sea where you might have um, a thermocline, uh, a change in the temperature of the water, and you may get a ping back off the thermocline. It's actually, of course, what submarines do to try and evade uh, anti-submarine warfare ASW frigates that are trying to look for them, is that they are climbing up and down through thermoclines and through different grades of salinity to try and get that uh, radar to bounce back and then they are not seen by the ship but your depth sounder can do the same thing if you're in very muddy murky water you may have uh, a reading which is um it could be like you know zero or, or point two or point three and what it is you're in a super muddy river i've had that before you can have fouling across of course the the, the sounder which is going to give you a different reading you can have um, bottom paint which has gone across the bottom of the sounder and can often cause uh, weird readings you can end up where people have been messing around with the, uh, the the depth sounder and changing things around and and you don't know about it and you can also have the reset problem so i'll give you a little story about the reset issue which uh, happened to me some uh, B and G instruments, when you reset the master power on them, if uh, there's if the backup um, 
uh, capacitors or some of the older systems even backup batteries if the if there's no backup voltage available and the information is not stored correctly it will default to its um to its initial reading which is transducer depth which then means whatever system you're using it's going to be out it could be giving you a little bit of advantage it could be that it takes your advantage away and you run aground when you weren't expecting to reset can also be an issue when you've got modern depth sound uh, modern um what they call chart plotters chart plotters are part of your strategy for working out depth obviously the depth sound is giving you a certain number amount of information but your uh, you, you, whether you like it or not, you're probably going to end up driving around using your chart plotter as it's meant to be an aid to navigation. But for a lot of people, it is the source of navigation. It is the method of navigation that you're using. And sometimes mark one eyeball and common sense can kind of go out the window because the depth sounder says this and the chart plotter says that. And those little electronic servants are always correct. Well, once in a while, they're not. And it can go wrong. I can remember doing the Caribbean 600 race uh, with another professional skipper on board and there was an issue with the chart plotter. I think it had frozen or something, right? Whatever had happened, the stages that this other professional went through was to do a hard reset on the on the unit, which I've got to say, now we have no waypoints. We have none of our settings. We have none of the layout settings on the screen. So everything's gone cock-a-hoot. So if you're going to do anything that says something like factory reset, you want to be really thinking about that. And maybe asking the person who's uh, on watch and knows how the machine works properly. However, we were coming back up the course. If you don't know, the Caribbean 600 is like this crazy like figure of eight all over the uh, the, the Caribbean islands around Antigua and um, St. Bart's and uh, and uh, you know, all the way down then to as far as uh, Guadeloupe. And it's a real twist, twisty, turny one. But as you're going around... Um, where's that? We have to go around. It's St. Martin. St. Martin is obviously do the Heineken regatta there. There's lots of things happen in that area. I know it very, very well, but we were looking for advantage. We were racing. You're coming in from the east. Uh, you're going across the bottom of the island. So you, you interact with the island from like the four o'clock, five o'clock, six o'clock position. And then you have to round a corner to then continue going up seven, eight, nine o'clock. Okay. On that corner, it's very, very shallow. And this issue with this chart plotter being uh, reset had occurred as we were transiting across the bottom of the island, which, you know, at the speeds we were doing is like 20, 30 minutes. So we get to this corner and I say, how much depth is there ahead of us? And I get the answer back. Like, I don't know what the answer was. It was like 15 or something like that. I was like 15 meters. There's not 15 meters in front of us. What are you talking about? And the other person goes down, has a look at the chart. Yeah, 15. I'm like, there's no way there's 15 meters of depth there. It's like it's bright, sandy, bright, sandy beaches. And that sand extends under the boat. I wouldn't be surprised if there's three meters of, <laughs> well, the other person dicks their head back down below and goes, oh, sorry, that was in feet. And then it's like, well, how much depth is there under us now then? I'm up at, you know, I'm standing in the middle of the cockpit. Obviously, I can walk and see the depth sounder in, in a hot second if I need to. And um, the the answer was, I don't know. Now, the thing is, I know the area very, very well. So I knew that I wasn't too close to the shore. I knew roughly where we were. I just wanted to know, like, how tight can I cut this corner? But this information that had come in, uh, 15, there's, you know, that's fine. <laughs> Apart from when I point out that that, vo that boat, the Volvo 60, it draws 12 or 13 feet. You're talking about the fact that there have been 60 centimeters underneath us as we're beating to windward at 12 knots. Like, this is not cool. This error has come about because we have got out of Kafluntalik with what's going on here, what numbers are what, what relates to what. The entire process of numbers that we use on board the boat is based on the fact that everybody 
knows what's going on and that those numbers stay the same and that we all have the same point of reference, which leads to the next error, which really relates to what we're talking about, which is that um, the crew don't understand what the numbers mean. Now it could be across the board with all sorts of different things, but it particularly relates to depth sounders. The, the argument is that having the depth set to the surface of the water will give you the ability to look at the chart and then look at your depth and basically correlate between the two. And it should be like whatever it says on the, 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 um, the depth sounder has been uh, adjusted so that it reads from the surface of the water to the bottom of the ocean and that the chart is showing what's from the surface of the water down to the bottom of the water. But that's, that's kind of true and it's kind of not true because uh, charts are, are all referenced to uh, lowest astronomical uh, mean, right? So that's not what the water is. There's going to be tide on top of that. There's always going to be plus tide on top apart from like extreme low springs. It's the lowest astronomical mean. So you've got numbers which are like kind of right on the chart, but you're not accounting for tide at all. And then you've got numbers coming from the depth sounder, which are kind of right because you're not sure how much um, perturbance there is in the water, how it's affecting your sounder. Um, if the crew don't understand the numbers that they're looking at, you can end up in a in a, a big problem. And the big problem comes when the crew are used to looking at commercial uh, sounders, which are set from the bottom of the keel and that you have decided to set it from the surface of the water. And again, I have been in this situation. I was in this situation in a 67 foot challenge yacht off Hong Kong, um, circling to find uh, an anchorage place. And the vessel was commercially rated, so it must have its depth sounder set from the bottom of the keel. The new skipper who had come on board, I was the mate at the time, this is, I don't know, like 20 years ago or something. And um, he had, of his own free will decided to change the uh, chart, uh, sorry, the depth sounder so that it was reading from the surface of the water. Well, the boat drew like two point, do they draw 2.7 meters? I feel those boats. Well, whatever it was, <laughs> it was the number that was showing when we hit the bottom because uh, I did not understand the change in numbers that had happened. It's very simple to rule to have. You say to everybody, if this thing here reads less than add in the number that you're thinking, then we've got a problem. And then everybody in the crew can be your eyes and ears looking at that depth sound. If you get a little bit out of place, if you get a little bit out of position or something's underwater you're not expecting, then the crew can help you to keep an eye on that. And I will say this, um, it has been my ongoing uh, experience with uh, all of the situations I've been in with watch leaders, that it is often easier to sleep when you have women as your watch leaders, because they will tend to uh, understand and question the orders until they've got it like set what you want, and then they will stick to it. And it's the boys who are always like, well, we just thought we could get some advantage or we didn't think the score would be too strong or, you know, no, we didn't know where Bob was. So we just thought he was you know, in the toilet or something. It's always that. And if that creeps in, um, and you haven't all got a firm understanding of exactly what these numbers mean, you can hit the bottom pretty hard. So I would say that uh, for me personally on my boat, because it's commercial, it's a very easy decision to make. And then because obviously I've done this however many years, I'm always thinking when that thing gets to zero, then that's when we're going to hit the bottom or whatever it is, right? I think I can understand the thing with the surface of the water that's groovy, but you're still going to have to like, you're still going to have to allow for tide and everything. And it might give an overly simplistic view of what's going on. If you're in the Caribbean and there's only like, uh, you know, a foot and a half, two foot of tidal movement it's maybe not such a big deal, but most places on the West coast, East coast, of the U S Europe, you know, if I think about 
the channel like around the um the the channel islands or when i was uh, on the when the royal naval reserve on the west coast of the uk we had 30 feet of tide like if you're going to set your sounder to the surface of the water uh well that's fine we've got that but that's you have nothing to do with what's on the chart on the on the chart because at 110 percent springs we could be below what's on the chart we could be above what's on the chart you know it could be anything so I would say, oh, you know, there's one other thing I want to point out when uh, depth sounders go wrong. The the depth sounders on the Open 60, I have uh, two, four, is that right? Is that logs? And I've got two two sounders at the back, one on either side, because the boat's so wide, it's like 21 foot wide and flat bottomed. When it um, levers up into a, like a, a, a power reaching or a beating uh, situation, um, part of the hull's out of the water. So that sounder won't work. Um, so then I have to flick a switch and then the sounder which is on the downside of the boat will be the one that's pinging the bottom. But there's an effect anyway that these things, they, they pump out their signal underwater, but if you've got the boat heeled over hard, it will create a false reading. If you think about your boat, let's say it's got the sounder on the port side and you're sailing along and the wind's coming over the port side of the boat, you're on port tack, the starboard side of the boat is dipping down, that um, transducer on the port side is now not aiming directly at the bottom. It's aiming at a point which could be 30 degrees in angle away from the perpendicular to the seabed. So it's gonna give you a falsely deep reading. Um, this can be a problem as you like come into shallow water, the boat depowers, you go to tack and it goes aground as you stand upright. So I've done that in the in the Caribbean off Jamaica once. So um, how do we how do we bring this all together, bring all the threads together? If you're commercial, you have no choice. It's going to be below the keel, end of story. You try and explain it to somebody with gold on his shoulders in court. Ain't going to happen. If you're, if it's your personal craft and you're doing what you can choose to do, whatever you want, you can switch the thing off if you like, or, you know, do whatever you want to do. But everybody on the boat has to understand what's going on. And I would say the only way of doing that is to put a little neat printed out label which says when this reaches, this boat will go aground. Not like plus and minus, negative, whatever, like you're trying to do the dashboard on a NASA shuttle. It's not about that. Make it clear, make it obvious. Not, um, you know, sounder offset plus two five or something like that. It's not gonna make any sense. When this reads, arrow, <laughs> when this thingy here reads 1.1 or 0.25, whatever it is, this boat will go aground and then you tell the people on the boat look at this this is how it works and they will become your eyes and ears i think that's the only way of getting getting around that so um i hope there's something in there that's useful but um thank you very much to that warren he also uh, was uh, asking about uh, this was a little bit older so he was saying what you're going to do for b uh, and he said about boy um and the uh the international now what's that called International Lighthouse Keepers Association. I've forgotten what it's called now. I should know this stuff, shouldn't I? There's like IALA, I-A-L-A, International Association of Lighthouse, and then something A at the end of it. I don't know what it is, but there's IALA A and IALA B, and uh, everyone's doing different things around the world. That's probably quite a good topic, but I, I might deep dive on that on one of these other ones that I do, because um, it's a bit... Um, it's a bit of an interesting one, that. <laughs> Why is the Philippines on the same um, system as the US? Could that have anything to do with history, I wonder? Yeah, I'll get back to it. Thanks, Warren. That's a, that's a really good question. Okay, so we've got one here from 
Nigel, and I know it's Karen, Karen and Nigel Cave. Hey guys, um, they've been listening to me for a long time, I know, and they're also Patreons, that's fantastic. They're gonna be in the mix for the draw, which we're gonna be doing. I'm gonna do it uh, tomorrow. I'm recording this on the 4th of uh, May. Um, I'm gonna do uh, another podcast, which will have the draw in, and that's simply because I'm gonna be contacting people and just making sure that with the winners that they are okay with the fact that, um, when is this going to be <laughs> when is this going to be possible like we're in covid lockdown how can you win a trip and then it's covid lockdown i just want to make sure that's all uh, groovy but we'll we'll do that in the next uh, podcast the draw has already happened i'll announce the winners in the next um the next podcast so uh nigel and i imagine on behalf of karen uh, writes and he's saying that he was enjoying the one about batteries we did the lead acid dodo um he says uh He's also sold on lithium-ion as the only way to go. He says, when we finally get a boat, I think they're between boats right now, we plan to combine lithium-ion with two big alternators on the engine, some solar power, and then use DC to DC chargers to trickle the lead acids used for the engine start. Um, oh, and for the bow thruster, windlass, etc. Um, charged like this, the lead acids should last a long time, absolutely. And given that they will basically never be discharged significantly, yeah, absolutely right. Um, you know, getting lithium ion batteries to use in your house supply uh, is a very good idea. This is the lithium phosphate uh, batteries that we discussed um, in that uh, podcast. That was, when was that? That was like 10 back, wasn't it? They're much more expensive. And we learned that when we were doing it. They're probably to the tune of, hmm. Uh, five times more expensive just thinking about what I've got but there is a benefit if it says 200 amp hours on the side of the battery when you discharge it you will have got 200 amp hours out of it if you've got a lead acid battery theoretically there's 200 amp hours in there but if you go much below 50% charge status you're going to destroy the battery and then well then you don't have a battery anymore so it's not really 200 amp hours is it it's 100 amp hours if you want to keep redoing it uh, keep keep uh, recharging it and keep it on the boat but if you're using it for the windlass or for the bow thruster, as uh, as uh, Karen and Nigel here point out, then it's going to be uh, doing what it needs to do, and it's not really going to be affecting. You can go for a cheaper option for those. Absolutely good point. Always, of course, watching out for um, are these sealed batteries or are these venting batteries, and if they are venting batteries, that there's no um, uh, issues with corrosion or with venting around them. But um, yeah, that's always sealed, of course. Sealed batteries sort that right out. The lithium ion batteries is the benefit that you can't overcharge them because the battery management system will stop you from doing that and you can't undercharge them either. They can't discharge too far to a point where the battery is damaged. So uh, two big alternators on the engine, good, yeah, pump, out, pump it out 100 amps, uh, churning into the uh, those lithium ions through the battery uh, management system, through some kind of like, you might consider something like a Balmar smart controller. I go on about them all the time, but it's literally a magical, magical beast. The old um, lithium uh, ion batteries are really gonna uh, appreciate the fact that they, uh, the, the voltage coming to them is somewhat managed, somewhat uh, taken care of by the uh, Balmar units or similar. Um, and that's it, that's a, that's a totally perfect situation. The thing that I'm adding into here now, and uh, I've got a little note here from a longtime listener, Scott Booth is saying uh, he's excited about my new sponsor, um, who uh, will be announcing that a little bit later on. They're just asking me to hold back on that. There's no, there's no issue, but um, they're getting their ducks in the row. It's a, it's a new area for them. They are a hydrogen power company uh, who is getting into the field of providing hydrogen uh, power solutions for boats, for, for people that go on the water, people like us. I've got engines in the boats here that I've got 38 horsepower, a 78 horsepower, and a 200 horsepower, all diesels. Um, 
And in the end, we are gonna have to have a solution for them burning uh, dinosaur juice. There's no two ways about it. Like you're blind if you think it's not gonna be part of it. And how much better anyway to be out in the water and either that the um, emissions from the engine are, you know, clear and clean and uh and don't smell bad because often you know diesel can make people smell smell uh, sorry diesel smell can make people feel seasick but um how much better to be in a situation where we don't have to worry about that or we go yet further down that path where it's an electric drive and i don't know if you've been on a boat that's electric drive it's glorious it's great now obviously anything beating to windward with an engine is going to be a bit of a bit of a noisy bingy bangy kind of situation but if you are uh on flat water if you're motoring because it's uh, uh you know flat day and there's no wind how much more glorious to be doing it where the only sound is just a little bubbling wake behind you and a bit of a whir coming from beneath the cabin sole it it is going to happen so we have to start to work out what's acceptable what's what how's this gonna how's this gonna fly and um, already from the bit that i've been involved with the chaps batteries even lithium ion batteries or not lithium ion lithium phosphate ion batteries am i getting this right lithium ion lithium ion phosphate god i got lithium ion lithium ion phosphate like it's all the new style batteries whatever they are they're good but at the end of the day, they don't have the energy density to be able to you know, drive you as long as you want to probably drive. Um, we're going to have to look for something else. And hydrogen has such energy density that these, what they call combustible uh, batteries, that's the way it's going forward. What happens in a, in a hydrogen combustible battery is that you've got a source of hydrogen. Let's not worry about that too much now. But you've got a source of hydrogen and you've got a source of oxygen. And those two come together within the... Um, catalyst which is inside this battery essentially and it produces a huge amount of power a huge amount of power from a very relatively small amount of hydrogen now that happening on the boat is not too much of a complication where does your hydrogen oxygen come from you can crack uh, water to into its com into its hydrogen its oxygen components and then you can use those too but an easier form of oxygen is just you know get it out of the air it's like 23 percent oxygen you can use that fine so now we can hone this down where are we going to get hydrogen and that's where we get a bit of a problem if you think back to like the 1890s when cars started to come in and then boats started to get uh, you know small gasoline engines to begin with and then diesel engines a little bit later on a massive infrastructure of, uh, of fuel supply, fuel storage had to come together, standardization of the way that that happened, um, administration of it, taxation of it, like huge amounts of stuff came into play. But it all happened like so long ago that we just take it as red that you pull up at the marina, it's got a couple pumps, maybe you can pay with your credit card or whatever, or some, some guy on his summer holidays from university will come out and, hello, can I help you? Um, so that will be, that is what we expect. But that's going to have to change. So the bigger issue, we already kind of have the technology, the electric motors, no problem. Hydrogen combustible batteries, we've got it. Uh, oxygen's in the air. The issue we've got is where does the hydrogen come from? Because you try and crack seawater and it creates a lot of problems where it gives off chlorine gas and where it rots the cathode that's involved in doing it. Um, that's going to have to be made safer and easier if you're going to crack it there on board the boat. But then where does the power come from to, to crack that water? So we may have to desalinate the water and then crack it and then store it on. But it's like, it's a lot of issues. What's more than likely going to happen is that we're going to have hydrogen tanks on the boats. And from the stuff I've been finding out now, I've got to tell you, the tanks aren't massive. They're not massively heavy and they are, um, 
a very known technology. The ones that uh, I'm looking at putting into Falcon for this project are actually been developed for buses. There's lots of city buses that run on hydrogen and their tanks are rigged for being in collisions. They've been tested in the in the in the in the motor world in in the uh, automotive world and they're already uh, understood like how they will possibly crack or crash or whatever. You're never going to be involved in something like that. What you're more worried about is is hydrogen going to leak out of them and they explode. Well, hydrogen goes up and liquid petroleum gas goes down. So even if it does leak, it's going up and out of the boat. So it's something we're going to have to get used to. It's something we're going to have to incorporate in, but we're going to have to get a massive infrastructure in place for this to be able to happen. So, you know, it's early days in all this, but you can see you can see where it's going. If you don't think it's going to happen, I'm sorry, it is going to happen. Diesel is going the way of the dodo. And if you want someone to back you up, go to your computer and type in how long until the world's uh, oil supply runs out. Have you ever done this? It's really interesting. I will <laughs> I will do it now. I'm going to type into my computer, how long will, I oh, can't spell will, will the world's oil last? Question mark. All perfectly done. Uh, 53 years. <laughs> it's at the top. <laughs> it's like the top search. Um, so let's, uh, let's just put that in perspective. 53 years ago. So I'm 43. So 1967. So 1967 is like, it's quite a long time ago, isn't it? It's like, you know, people could have lived and died in 53 years, unfortunately. But there's probably quite a lot of people listening to this whose boats are contemporary to that period. So the amount of time your boat's been around in that amount of time going forwards, that's what the numbers are saying right now. We won't have any oil left. So you can see there's massive changes coming. And if you think that us chug, chug, chugging around with our little diesel boats are not going to be affected by this, this is your wake up call. Um, it's going to have to change. We have to work out how it's going to change. And as always with these things, there's going to be a massive wealth transfer as this happens. Hydrogen companies, the logistics companies, the installation companies, it's all going to be affected. And that's what this company that I'm working with now are more than aware of. That's why they've moved into this se sector. So the times of like big oil stopping um, technology from moving forward are now behind us. What's happened is that the private industry has realized there's profit to be made here and we're going to move forward. There is a lot to be said as to, you know, can uh, this technology really do everything it's told us it can do? Look at the acceleration of um, solar technology that's happened in the last 10 years since China got interested in this. It's only a couple of years ago that the first solar power station uh, won an open market tender to supply power to an oil refinery. How ironic is that? In the Middle East. The technology is getting up there. I don't think the technology that we have now is necessarily going to be able to take us forward. I think there's huge issues with like, where does cadmium and cobalt come from? We have to answer these questions. We have to make it that it's um, it's moral from, from source to operation. But the direction, the general direction, we're not going to be digging stuff out of the ground for very much longer. So I know this change is coming. I... <laughs> Uh, I had to go diving the other day and um, uh, if you do any scuba diving, maybe not. One of the great ways of getting the legs and arms on, on your wetsuit uh, is to put a plastic bag over your hands, a nylon plastic bag or polyethylene rather plastic bag on your hand, slide it down the arm or slide it down the leg and pop, out comes your foot. Super easy. I've been doing that going onto the water since I know like first wearing a wetsuit at school when I was like 10 years old. Well, the other day <laughs> I was putting my wetsuit on I couldn't find a plastic bag because they don't use them in the shops here anymore. It's all paper bags. You can't use a paper bag. I had to find 
the plastic bag that went around some instructions for a generator I'd bought to put my foot in to slide down. Like that is a real world example of things are changing. And um, I'm actually, one of the podcasts I'm going to do going forwards is about uh, the Marine Pollution Act. Uh, I have spent 20 years at sea doing what the Marine Pollution Act uh, said is wise. Um, Personally, I think the Marine Pollution Act might be getting out of date now and I can uh, share with you a lot of good information about what's happening with uh, micro... We hear so much stuff about like microplastics and oceanic garbage and all the rest of things. Um, Probably as I'm saying this, you're already like, yeah, I'll be uh, be skipping that one. Let me me just give you a piece of information, chaps, (laughs) that may have interest to you. Do you know what phthalates are? Well, phthalates are the big new problem that we've just kind of worked out. Did you know that um, North American sperm count has dropped from 99 million per mil, I think it is, to uh, 44? Uh, Do do you know why that is? That's because of phthalates. (laughs) Plastics, polymers, which are now in all elements of our food supply, the food chain, in the water, in the ocean, in the groundwater, like don't think for a second that this is like a garbage patch just floating off of California that's somebody else's issue. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a bit of a tricky one for guys to talk about things like sperm count and all the rest of it. It it makes people uh, nervous. It like strikes at the heart of like the 20th century version of what it is to be a man. But um, yeah, <laughs> you probably want to find out a little bit more about that, and I'll, I'll be telling you some more about that because um, it's wild when you find out what this is. This is new research which has been done over the last 20 years. It's just starting to be brought to the fore now by a couple of uh, very eminent um, American. Uh, uh, physiologists and, and, and biologists who are very clear about where this is going. So when we talk about plastics and what's going on, um, yeah, you might, maybe you're me more interested in the <laughs> Marine Pollution Act and what it means for you. But um, all right, so what else we got here? Um, uh, this one from, uh, ooh, got to zoom forward here. Oh, you know what? I've got a lovely one here. It's a very quick one. It's from Naomi Bailey. Hello, Naomi. Um, Naomi, you don't know it, but uh, you were the inspiration for the Dr. John Ray uh, Northwest Passage uh, podcast I just did. There's more to be said about the Northwest Passage. I think I covered some of it. I did learn an important lesson. If you want a bit of an inside scoop on how podcasts work, do not release a podcast on Monday. I learned that one. <laughs> you go online and find out like, uh, you know, when's the best days to release this? When are people going to listen to it? And they're all like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is the best time to release a podcast. You're like, oh, okay, fine. So I've done that two, like two weeks on the trot. Wow. Like, I got, I think it was like 150 people downloaded it yesterday where normally we'd be expecting like 350, 400 people on the first day. And I, I'm imagining that like people are busy with work. There's loads of other podcasts being released. There's, you know, all that stuff is happening. But um, yeah, I was like, wow, people really don't like to know about the Northwest Passage. But um, maybe they do. Maybe they'll just pick it up over time. But um, it was Naomi's comment. Um, yeah, well, Naomi, I read that and I immediately thought, you know what, I'm going to do something about the Northwest Passage. It's a bit of a favorite story of mine. Uh, Bruce Williams... I, I am so happy to receive more stuff from you, Bruce. He always writes good stuff. He says, uh, the interview with Rob was great. Yeah, definitely an interesting guy. I do know the branding is sailing, but uh, hearing about other things such as his exploration is super interesting. So thanks for keeping up on that. Yeah, that was very interesting. If you haven't seen that one. That was um, my mate, uh, Rob Phillips was on and he's got this very interesting background where he's actually a high level geologist doing uh, research in Fiji. He's been in the Amazon. He's been all over the place. Um, then he ended up on a um, uh, reality TV show on cable uh, called Below Decks where they're on the sailing boat and it's meant to kind of follow the lives of uh, of crew working on these super yachts. As we learned in that interview, uh, 
it's all a sham. Like I, I've been enough of those boats. The trifecta when you work on those boats is good owner, good skipper, good crew. Now that sounds pretty obvious, but the owner is in charge of like the overall feeling when they're on board, which is an important part of it. If you're doing a lot of charter, it can end up feeling like um, you're just somebody's slave and that's not much fun. If you've got a good owner, you really feel like you're kind of in helping them to make this dream come true. I've been very lucky with the people I've worked with on super yachts have been awesome. Um, they also then are controlling the budget and how much money comes down for the, how the boat's going to be kept. Um, good skipper is, well, that's pretty obvious. They're going to set the whole tone for what's going on on board. Um, and if that uh, tone is not very positive, it can be a real miserable place to be, however good everything else is. And then good crew. And good crew is often the hardest bit to do. Certainly, we all know, I think, that once you're within um, situations like human interaction situations where there's more than about five people, things get complicated. And being on boats of more than 100 foot, you're normally then on boats where there's more than five crew. And uh, it can end up being a bit of a bit of a... Uh, Bit of a complex situation, but nowhere near what those reality TVs show. Like if you were actually the skipper on the boat and that that ridiculous situation was going on, you'd just fire the people. Like it's it's just not worth it. Life's not life's not long enough. So um, yeah, it was uh, interesting to hear his perspective on that and quite how um, machined that lot was. How how. You know, they take the reality of what it is and then they just kind of machine out this new shape, this new product that they want to show because it's even more people screaming and shouting at each other and more dissatisfaction and division. And I do worry with that stuff. Like it's on and the the thought is this is what people like, but then it's on and people are watching because it's all that's on. So it's like, is this what we like or is this what you're telling us we like? And then standing way back to see what the effects are. Because I used to say to my daughter, like, how do you know what goes on behind other people's doors? Where do you get your information from about what it's like to live other lives, what it's like to be in other people's households? And most of it comes, certainly for a, for a child, comes from TV. So their entire idea of what goes on in other families comes from a medium which is developed to you know, make everything seem as dramatic as possible, make everything as exciting as possible as, you know, there's so much emotional energy because they're trying to get you to watch the next episode. But then if you're not careful, you start to get this idea that like, that's what life is like, where the actual reality is that it's not like that at all, of course. And most boats are not like that at all. So it was very funny too. I kind of knew that's what they did on those shows is a bit sad really, but um, it gives a, a bad impression of the industry. Like how would you do a TV show where it shows a really positive aspect of, of sailing. Like I've been involved in two documentaries on boats. I think they had a positive outcome. I did one called um, Hell Hell on High Water. I can't find any mention of it anywhere in anything ever again. <laughs> I don't know, obviously it wasn't that good, but it was on ESPN and Star for a long time and um, kind of followed me going around the world. I think there was a positive outcome to it, but it, uh, you know, in terms of the story it was giving of somebody overcoming uh, adversity and, and making it around the world. But um there's very few things, hey. It's uh, such a pity. It's it's much easier to grab onto super yachts and show that to be awful. But anyway, I digress as always. Um, he says, I know you mentioned Longobarda might be a new boat in the future. Absolutely. She was hauled out the other day and I saw some wonderful pictures of her out the water in Portugal. There they're getting along with that. And we are very carefully now looking at exactly what's going to happen and when we're going to be able to uh, leave Canada, go to Portugal and pick her up and bring her back. Um, Anyway, uh, Bruce says uh, he was talking about it with the wife last night over dinner and drinks <laughs> over dinner and drinks. Like that's two separate things. Like dinner was one thing and then we had drinks. 
Uh, and it's something we're super interested in. I think sailing across the Atlantic in a 60-foot carbon fiber skiff sounds super cool. But when we looked at Longobarda, she was sold on that. Yeah, <laughs> that lady's got good taste. Me too. I'm sure it's something tentative as of now and plans aren't set up. But as you kind of begin to hash it out, let us know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Here's the, the deal for us. Longobarda, is, uh, she was a very famous maxi back in the day. She's 82 foot. Um, she has a beautiful interior. It's been put in by Mike Slater, by the current owner. Um, she's got hydraulic winches, all sorts of things. So on deck, that boat is basically the same. There are a couple changes that have happened to the rig. We uh, will be getting a boat which has had six meters. That's like 20 feet cut off the rig, which sounds, oh my God, like what's the point in going out? It's a motorboat, but no. Those very, very tall maxi rigs are a handful. And if you're trying to like keep stress down and make it usable, um, I advised the present owner to do this a couple of years back. He did it um, and it, it the boat is gonna be great for it. Um, what's gonna happen is we're gonna put a flat top main on instead of a pinheaded main. And we're rega gonna regain a lot of that um, sail area, but we're gonna regain it lower down in the sail, which is gonna mean she isn't gonna heel over as much. Um, we're also gonna spec four reefs in the new mainsail, which has been ordered um, so we can really reef her down, keep her under control, uh, all roller furling headsails at the front. So everything on deck is 90s maxi, which you know you may as well be on any boat. By the time we got to the 90s, pretty much that's where boats are at now. Faster, wider, flatter, maybe, but grinders, big winches, high loads, a lot going on. That's what it's all about. That's what we're excited about. And we can do that. But for Bruce's wife, you're gonna have to write and tell me what her name is. If you look carefully at the pictures, uh, behind the traveler, <laughs> there is a lovely open flat area, which has already got an area where you can put up a bimini and some shade. And my plan <laughs> is to sit there. <laughs> um, so yeah, down below deck, she's got some cabins. She's got uh, three cabins. Each one's got a double bunk. The other two have got bunk beds. There's two good berths back, which we'll probably use for um, people coming on board. One's kind of in the navigation area, one's behind the galley, and then there's some area at the back for the crew. And they'll probably be putting three crew on there. So there's one person who's gonna be looking after below decks and the food and all that kind of stuff. And with help from the people that come on board, this is not gonna be like um, super yacht thing. And then on deck, we've got two people, one running the cockpit and the aft, one running the foredeck. So I'm really excited about it. It's gonna be a, a different direction for us, um, but yeah, we're just, we're just pinned in at the moment by what is going to happen with uh, with COVID. So uh, as soon as I know, I assure you, I'll be telling you. So good. Well, that brings us up to about an hour and 20. So uh, it's uh, time to put down that um, that duster, that vacuum cleaner, take that dog home, finish that polishing or whatever it is job, get a cup of tea. Um, I'm going to be back in the next one, uh, which I think will be a news and views or something like that. You can tell, you know, I love doing these ones where you write in and and tell me what you're up to. Um, the reality is uh, it's tricky to do if you don't write. So um, write in, ask questions, tell me what you're up to. I love from the very beginning there, um, the, the the quote that we got there, who was that from? That was from Carlos, wasn't it? Just gotta dig his, yeah, Carlos, he said that um, through, through listening to the podcast and listening to the comments that people already put in, he says uh, he's feeling a good connection, good connection with all sea people. And whether you're on a lake, on a river, on a motorboat, on a trawler, 
um, as is Hollywood, <laughs> one of his three boats he's going to have. Awesome. Um, the reality is we've all got the same thing going on and uh, let's connect and, uh, and and share our experiences, our knowledge and, and, and be as safe as possible. But um, until the next one, we'll be uh, re, uh, announcing the draw from the Patreon's uh, supporters. That's going to be a big one. People are going to be winning like transatlantic trips and regattas and all sorts of stuff. Uh, That'll be in the next one, probably uh, news and views coming up the next couple of days. Uh, but until then, as always, I hope that you are safe and sound wherever you are. Looking forward to some sailing and being out in the water and enjoying yourselves. And um, I shall speak to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>